Turn, if you will, to Genesis chapter 4 as we continue our study. Genesis chapter 4. Today our text will be verses 15 to the end of the chapter, no, 15 to 24, I'm sorry, 15 to 24. Genesis 4, 15 to 24. A few well-publicized archaeological finds explained by a dose of the latest speculative interpretations combined with uh, several decades now of Fred Flintstone and his friends. And we all think we have a pretty good picture of how prehistoric cavemen rose to modern civilization. But the Bible presents quite a different picture. For here we see man not primarily ascending to greatness, but here we see man having fallen from perfection, now learning to survive in a world under God's curse. And as that life develops after man's fall into sin, very quickly two lines of descent develop. The godly and the ungodly. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Seth's descendants and Cain's descendants. That's all recorded in the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5. Now today we're just going to look at Cain's descendants, the ungodly line. Next week we'll get to uh, uh, chapter 5 and uh, the, the descendants of Seth. But today we look at Cain's descendants. Let's read it. I'll read from verse 15, which uh, picks up and overlaps a little with last week, down through verse 24. The Lord said to Cain, not so, that is, that he would not be killed. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son, Enoch. To Enoch, Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Adah, the other named Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal, he was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of all who play the harp and flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. And there will end a reading. This is not an easy passage to, to sort through what we ought to learn from it. It's been an interesting week for me to think about this and to chew on it all week. 
But I think that there are two great truths that uh, this passage teaches us that are worthy of our attention this morning. And the first is this, that God gives good gifts to the wicked. God gives good gifts even to the wicked. Now this is easy to say, but think about it. If mankind is totally depraved, fallen and unable to bring forth anything pleasing to God, then what is the source of the good we see in the world? The good done by the hands of people without Christ. How do we explain that? Well, theologians explain this with a teaching which they call common grace. You can call it what you want if you don't like that term, but, but the teaching is that clearly God extends his favor. He lavishes good things of one kind or another on a sin-cursed world. John Calvin says it this way, those virtues are not common properties of nature. You get that? They are not the common properties of nature. But the peculiar graces of God, which he dispenses in great variety and in a certain degree to men that are otherwise profane. God gives good gifts to the wicked. Now the late... Professor of Theology, Dr. John Murray, explains that God's common grace has several different features. For example, God is gracious in that he restrains human depravity and its effects from completely destroying the world. He, he restrains sin. God is gracious in that he restrains his wrath, at least for a little while, allowing the wicked to continue to live and know some peace and prosperity, perhaps. But then positively, God shows his grace in that he endows people with good gifts, with talents and aptitudes, and causes them to practice certain virtues, to pursue worthy tasks, to cultivate the arts and the sciences for the good of humanity. All of this is evidence of God's common grace, as it's called. The fact that God sometimes gives good gifts even to the wicked. I make a point of that because that's exactly what we see happening here in Genesis chapter 4. Think about Cain for a moment. Cain brought an unacceptable sacrifice to the Lord. We talked about that, that last week. The Lord didn't receive it. But the Lord admonished Cain. Well, Cain got mad. In fact, he got so mad that in his anger he killed his brother. God confronted him, but he denied it. In fact, he got arrogant. Who am I? You think I'm my brother's keeper? And finally, when God pronounced sentence on him, he still complained and accused God of not treating him fairly. Now, what would you do with someone like Cain if you were God? I've had enough of you. <laughs> I've had it with you. No mercy. That's it. God still gives good gifts to the wicked. First of all, he let Cain live. Cain didn't let Abel live, but God let Cain go on living. In fact, God established protection 
for Cain. That's what we read in verse 15 there. The Lord said to him, if anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. God here is establishing restraint on human civilization. Think about it. Everybody on the face of the earth was related to Abel, who Cain killed. No wonder Cain was afraid. Somebody's going to kill me, he says. They'll come looking for me. But you see, God does not want a world that's ruled by the revenge of a mob. And so he pronounced a warning of his own judgment on those who acted with revenge, taking matters into their own hands. And God has always done this. In the, in the Old Testament law, God established cities of refuge to provide the same restraint. And even today we enjoy the rule of law, not personal vendetta. For God gives good gifts. He restrains the evil, even for the wicked. Oh, but God's gifts weren't just negative, providing protection for Cain. God blessed Cain with children. We see it in verse 17 and following there, the whole, the whole uh, genealogy of Cain and his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren. Cain's wife, uh, by the way, uh, his wife would have been his sister. This is not a hard question. Where did Cain get a wife? Uh, his wife bore him a son. He bore him many children. We have one named here. And before long, there were generations of descendants, gifts from God to wicked Cain. And out of those many descendants, a civilization was born. In the end of verse 17, we find that Cain built a city and named it after his son. Perhaps not a huge city, but a community nonetheless. And in only a few generations, as we get down to verses 20 to 22, Cain's descendant uh, Jabel is, is farming and living in tents and, and domesticating livestock. And Jubal is, uh, is developing the arts. He's uh, writing and performing music. And, and Tubal Cain is a blacksmith forging tools out of bronze and iron. Civilization? Oh, there may have been similar cultural developments among the generations of the righteous. But what God tells us for sure is that civilization was built by the wicked, the descendants of the murderer. Hey, how can that be? Because God gives good gifts to the wicked. He tells us about it in Psalm 73. Let me read a little bit. He describes the wicked that he sees around him. He says, they have no struggle. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their calloused hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their mind knows no limits. They scoff. They speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. 
and they increase in wealth. David says, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. In other words, David says, how can God let this happen? Here are people who are shaking their fist in his face, and God prospers them. And here I am trying to be diligent, to be holy. I've wasted my time. And almost lost his faith. Because he saw God give good gifts to the wicked. That's a struggle we face, too. A few years ago, the movie Amadeus was making the rounds. Maybe you saw it. It's the story of Amadeus Mozart, the brilliant musician. Well, actually, it's the story of Mozart's peer, Antonio Salieri. Salieri had desired since childhood to be a great composer, and he made a deal with God to grant him that desire. And he was a good composer. He did good music. But then along came Amadeus Mozart, who was brilliant, who redefined music, who dwarfed his little skill. Mozart, a true genius, who was profane. And suddenly Salieri was overwhelmed with jealousy. And jealousy turned to bitterness. And bitterness turned to hatred of God. How could God give the gifts of musical genius to this profane man when I'm trying to honor him? And in the end, Salieri, having set himself against God, goes insane. See, that's a study in common grace. The same thing we see in the life of Cain and his descendants. As God sometimes gives good gifts, the best gifts, to the wicked. If you've never struggled with this truth, well, you will. <laughs> it can be mind-boggling. It can cause you to throw away your faith. It can fill you with bitter resentment against God. But folks, here, Dave, here God helps us to know how to see this in the world. You know, David wrote in Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, everyone in it, and God meant that. Good things are His to give as He pleases. And everything good is worthy of praise to Him. Even if the recipient of that good gift is an ungodly person trying to take praise to himself, God still deserves honor. Oh, you see, we do not have to reject medical 
wonders because they were discovered by an atheist? We do not have to shy away from art or music because it was created by a wicked artist? We can enjoy a good novel or a movie even though we have to constantly reject the sin? Everything good is from our Father and it's worthy of praise to Him. Even when he places those gifts, those good things, in the hands of the most undeserving, wicked people. But there's another thing we need to see here, lest we be seduced by the world and just say, oh, well, that's all good then, I'll just go with it. No, there's another truth here in these same verses, and that's this. Without God, civilization always decays. Without God, civilization always decays. Yesterday I talked on the phone briefly to Jesse and Danielle Tamingen out in Cincinnati. I had heard a note that I received that uh, Danielle was having some struggles with her last few months of internship there at the Cincinnati Playhouse. And so I called to see if I could get her permission to talk about that a little bit for a moment. She said I could. She said, you see, when you're in school, you're kind of protected. Even in a non-Christian school, you're kind of protected. But now... She's out there doing theater in a, in a theater company and she's facing, facing the harsher, uglier realities of the world of professional theater. And so it's a huge question she faces. How can a Christian be involved in culture? How can one embrace the good for at the same time, one must avoid the evil that festers in every art form, in the midst of all the good. Hard question. Well, that's the same reality that we see here in Genesis 4, though. Yes, God gives good gifts even to the wicked, cultural development even to the descendants of Cain. But without God, that civilization is nonetheless decaying, rotting from the inside out. We see evidence of that decay in several different ways in these verses. First of all, think about this city that Cain built. Cain built a city. May I suggest that it was a city built by root, rootless people? verses we looked at last week make it very clear that Cain will always be a wanderer. Verse 11 says, you will be driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood. Verse 12 says, you will be a restless, restless wanderer on the earth. Verse 13, Cain says, today you're driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Verse 16, so Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod. The word Nod means 
wandering. So do you see what's driving Cain's desire to build a city? He's a restless wanderer. He is rootless. And where do rootless, restless, wandering people go? Back home? No, they don't. To this day, they fill the cities of the world. Undoubtedly, Cain was striving to find community. Striving to build connections, striving to find roots by gathering people around him. But because he had forsaken the Lord, at the heart of his being was a restless wanderer, even in the midst of the city. Dr. James Boyce, who you know that I read often, is a man who's given his entire ministry to one church right downtown Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's a man who's an expert on the American city. Listen to what he says. He says, rootless people are not less rootless for having gathered together in a city. They are not less hard for being together in one place. The loneliest people I know are in the city. The saddest stories I know concern city people. This is one reason why the greatest task facing the Christian church today is winning the city for Christ. For you see, without God, civilizations, great civilizations, Beautiful cities are filled with rootless, wandering people, and they are decaying from the inside out. Then we also see sin at work here in the decay of marriage. In verses uh, 20 and 21 and 22, Lamech's sons accounted for much of the advance in civilization, as we pointed out a minute ago. But Lamech also accounts for the worst decay. For in verse 19, we read that Lamech married two women, Adah and Zillah. God who created man and woman was the one who instituted marriage, and in doing so, God made his will very clear. God said, a man will leave his father and mother and will cleave to his wife, and two will become one flesh. Now that doesn't leave a lot of room for interpretation. One man and one woman made into one flesh. That's God's definition of marriage. Lamech didn't care. He wasn't doing things God's way. He married two wives. Now, Dr. Boyce, again, suggests that there was something behind this that's very common even today, what he calls the cult of beauty. He suggests that this was one of the underlying sins of this culture, the worship 
of beauty. You can see that in the meaning of the names here. Ada, the one wife, her name means pleasure, ornament, or beauty. Zillah means shade, perhaps referring to a luxuriant covering of hair. Lamech's daughter's name, Naamah, means loveliness. And so Dr. Boyce concludes, if the names of his wives are to be a guide, Lamech apparently chose women for their physical attractions rather than their moral stature or spiritual commitments. Here was a culture committed to physical pleasure, beauty, and charm, and not to those inner qualities that Peter describes as being the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. And how could we not be struck with the fact that we live in exactly the same kind of culture? Looks is everything. Substance is almost nothing. Sex appeal matters. Godliness is disregarded. And so men driven by the same spirit of Lamech trash the wives of their youth for younger models. More beauty. But inside such a civilization which abandons God, there's decay. It's rotting from the inside out. Well, finally, we see the decay of this civilization most blatantly in the violent outbreak of verses 23 and 24. Let me read it again. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. These are violent words. But these are not just violent words. These are violent words in poetry. This is wickedness with finesse. It's the kind of thing we might read or hear in our day. Here in the first recorded poetry, the human race. I can imagine that Ada and Zillah trembled inside as they heard their husband bragging of his violent revenge. And that's what it was. A young man injured me. A young man injured me. I killed him. That'll teach people not to mess with me, Lamech says. I'm the baddest dude here. Let the whole world know. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? But what he said was even worse than that. He said, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Wait a minute. Who promised that Cain would be avenged sevenfold 
that if anyone killed Cain, that he would express his vengeance upon that murder sevenfold. Who promised that? It was the Lord. The Lord who restrains evil by his word, his law, his presence in society. But Lamech says, I don't need the Lord to take care of me. You hurt me and I'll make the Lord's vengeance look like child's play. I don't care for the way God runs things. I can handle myself. As Derek Kidner observes, Lamech's taunt song reveals the swift progress of sin. Where Cain had succumbed to it, Lamech exalts in it. Where Cain had sought protection, Lamech looks around for provocation. The savage disproportion of killing a mere lad, the word is child, for a mere wound. That's the whole point. Of Lamech's boast. And Kidner concludes, and on this note of bravado, the family of Cain disappears from history. Not surprisingly, for without God, civilization will always decay. In Genesis 4 and 5, we have the early accounts of the descendants of the wicked and the descendants of the righteous. Next time, we'll consider the righteous, the descendants of Seth. But today, we heard the story of the descendants of Cain. Now, God originally gave this account to Moses and his people Israel as they travel through the desert about to enter the promised land. You see, the people of Israel had been in Egypt for 400 years, slaves for generations. They hadn't had many options in Egypt. They hadn't had to understand much about culture. They just made bricks, and that was it. But now God has redeemed them. and He's called them to be his holy people. And as a new nation, they're going to have to deal with the rest of the world. So how are they going to see the rest of the world? How are they going to see these pagan cultures around them? How are they going to see these neighbors who have so many good things and who have so much sin in their midst? Well, God here prepares them for faithfulness. For they're going to see that sometimes the wicked prosper by God's common grace. For God gives good gifts to wicked people. And they're going to sometime enjoy the benefits of those good gifts. And they need to give praise to God for that. They're going to inherit a land they didn't plant, houses they didn't build, vineyards that they didn't prune. But they also need to guard their hearts against that world. Understanding that any civilization that tries to build apart from God is destined to decay. And so they are called to be holy, to be separate, to constantly be on guard, to separate themselves from the world and the world's ways, for they are a holy people. But this is not just ancient history. 
This is not just for the people of Israel. The story of Cain's descendants is the story of today. For wicked, the wicked continue to receive good things from God's hand. As he continues to restrain his wrath and to bestow blessings on the undeserving. And so we continue to build secular cities and increasingly godless cultures, civilization built like theirs, on rootless community, on the cult of beauty, on arrogant, violent self-assertion. But our culture, indeed our own lives so construed, like theirs of old, are destined to disintegration. For any civilization, any culture without God will crumble. And so the goodness and the long-suffering and the forbearance of God calls us to repentance. God has shown mercy. Indeed, God has sent his Son to redeem this creation. Yes, judgment is coming as it was for them in the flood. But today there's forgiveness, there is safety for those who are in Christ, those whose judgment he has already taken on the cross. And so this is a call to come to Jesus and to turn away, to allow the goodness of God's blessings on us. The restraint of what we deserve to bring us to the Savior. This is also the challenge before us as God's people. Much the same as the descendants of Seth who lived nearby, the descendants of Cain, much the same as Moses and the people of Israel living in the midst of the pagan nations. So for us today, we are to be in this world, but not of it. We are to use it and give glory to God for it, but not love it. We are to bring the message of deliverance from sin's bondage, but to be careful that we're not ourselves re-enslaved. Amen. Shall we pray? Thank you, Lord, that your word is as current as today's newspaper. When we first read it, Lord, sometimes we are put off and we think this is ancient stuff that has nothing to do with us, but the more we think about it, because your spirit enlightens us, we see that the problems of humanity and the problems of your people living in the midst of the wicked haven't really changed that much. So Lord, as we meditate on these things this afternoon and perhaps in the days to come this week, I would ask that you would bring forth these two things in us. May your goodness really bring us to repentance. Lord, we have gotten away with murder. We have sinned and not felt the effects. You have blessed us when we don't deserve a thing. And yet we continue to make a living 
and to enjoy our families and to see and hear good things and to live in prosperity. Oh Lord, help us to understand that every bit of your goodness is a call to repentance. Thank you that you have restrained your wrath and given us such an opportunity to turn around in radical discipleship and begin to follow Jesus. And then, Lord, secondly, I would pray that you would help us to be able to think right about, rightly about our world. To be able to see good as a gift from your hand, even when it's in the hands of the wicked for a while. And to praise you and honor you and to not find jealousy and bitterness in our hearts. But I pray that you'd also help us, Lord, to guard our hearts and to realize that no matter how wonderful something looks and no matter how cultured it looks and no matter how beautiful it looks and no matter how widely accepted it is, if, if you are not in it, it's got cancer and it's certain to perish. Lord, teach us how to live in the world, not of it. We ask in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior.